Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This episode, we're joined by Jenny Rose Carey. She's a renowned educator, historian, and author, and also a senior fellow horticulture at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society in Philadelphia. Hello. Thank you for having me, Kathy. I've, I've been wanting to have you on since I started this podcast way back in March. <laughs> and one of our first podcast subjects was the Philadelphia Flower Show. And I don't know if you got a chance to listen to it yet, but Marianne Wilburn and I, another garden uh, communicator, and I talked about what we loved that year and past Philadelphia Flower Show um, experiences as well. I'll, I'll make sure I listen to it after this. Yeah, so yeah, it's, I almost feel like we've come kind of full circle since then. So, but a lot has changed since that week of the flower show. Exactly. Yes, we we were very lucky. We managed to get the flower show in, and everyone could see the exhibits and learn some things. And you know, um, we didn't know what was coming at the time, did we? Mm-hmm. I think we had like a little clue An that in- the world was inkling. about to shut down, but that first week of March was definitely different. And I, and then we thought, okay, in two weeks, we'll be back together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. We didn't really understand, I don't think. Yeah. No, that that is for sure. But it's kind of good. We, we were on a little bit of a break. We got a little more time in our own gardens. So I did want to talk to you today about your home garden, Northview, which is outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, it's about 17 miles north of uh, Center City, and it's about four and a half acres. And I, I as you said, I, I've actually done more weeding this year than ever. I'm normally on the road doing lectures. I would have been up in Long Island and down, you know, who knows where. But, you know, it's, you know, that's the that's the silver lining to this is you know those of us who are lucky enough to have a garden even if it's a indoor garden have really just benefited from our interactions with green and living things yeah hmm. so from your accent we know that's not a pennsylvania or philadelphia accent <laughs> really really <laughs> kathy no so um, i was gonna say let's yeah. start at the beginning so what brought you to horticulture what brought you to pennsylvania Okay, so I was born in London, in Islington, and grew up in a little village called East Morling in Kent, so that's southeast of London. And my my uh, dad's family had been there since the 1600s, so, you know, was in the next village over to my grandparents. Um, one grandfather was a farmer, all of my family gardened, and my dad is a botanist. So I really, you know, we had gardens all the time growing up and of course I was the oldest of four girls so I had to be you know helper helper gardener weeder digger planter so you know I didn't know any different really and it is a bit of a cliche to say that you know a lot of Brits are gardeners and it, but it's pretty true even today I think but back then you know pretty much everyone had a vegetable patch we had you know the equivalent of a community garden called a an allotment um which you know we went we 
wheeled our wheelbarrow down the village street and took the tools and you know did the weeding and wheeled it always seemed to be uphill both ways when you're a kid but, <laughs> but you know but uh so you know our little cottage garden wasn't big enough to grow food really and um but we had plenty of flowers and one tree one little silver birch tree uh but we played outside all the time you know there wasn't room inside to play so my mum would tip us all out you know so it was it was a nice childhood i i really hope that more kids get outside and have been outside because they're saying it's much safer to be outside than inside so i hope i hope it helps encourage parents and grandparents to take them out out and about i think so i'm seeing more and more of my neighbors children who i didn't even know existed Oh. In, the, in the past few months coming by and I even had a little 18 month old toddler visit the other day and her father had let me know over the garden fence that this was their daily walk that oh. she always liked to come and stop there and she was inspecting all the daylilies along my border so oh, that was fun so to sweet. learn oh that is nice no I, I really you know those of us in the industry keep saying you know get your kids outside you know do some gardening grow some food plant some seeds with them or whatever you can do but it just I think everything is pointing to how it helps mental health how it helps you know it's exercise it's fresh air it's all the things that we've known for generations and and uh, I hope that message is getting through to people that haven't tried gardening before and that they have a go. So you grew up with chlorophyll in your veins. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, you, when you went off to school, were you thinking you would be a professional horticulturist or were you looking for another pursuit? No, I didn't really know. Um, my dad, you know, being in botany, by the time I went to university, botany and zoology had sort of merged. So there weren't many places you could study botany. So I studied biology. Uh, undergraduate at Southampton and then I, I really didn't still know what I wanted to do and I could have thought about horticulture because the little village that we lived in East Morling um, actually had an agricultural and horticultural research station in it so a lot of my parents friends were in the business of more like fruit apple apples strawberries and all my summer jobs have been picking strawberries and those sort of things but I, I still wasn't sure and they ended up uh, training at Oxford University uh, to be a teacher, uh, postgraduate um, education. And that's where I met my husband, who's from Philadelphia. So that was uh, that was how I ended up here. We got married after we finished school. And um, then a few years later, we moved uh, to the Pennsylvania area where um, his family, actually, a lot of the, the Carey family is from Baltimore. So it's all this East Coast. So we knew we'd move somewhere, Baltimore or Philadelphia. Lovely. And so you said you had three younger sisters. Yes. Yeah. You have three daughters. Is that yes. correct? And my sisters between them have another seven daughters. So, yes, there's a reason I study women's history and horticulture. You know, <laughs> so there's my dad has four daughters, uh, 10 granddaughters. And then um, my middle daughter just had a grandson who's about 11 months old. So that's the first to break the streak for four generations because my mum was one of two girls as well. So there's a lot of a lot of girls. Yeah, so a lot of feminine energy, a lot of growing. Yes, and they do get on very well, which is great. And some of them are growing houseplants. My, the, the daughter that just had the baby, I think there is something about buying a house and 
then realizing you've got to take care of, you know, either indoors or outside, whatever. Um, and so she's growing all kinds of vegetables from seed and has house plants and all kinds of things. So I'm very, very pleased. Nice. And I met your daughter Mead, I think it is, yes. at, the, at the flower show, and she had entered a competition, correct? Yes. Oh, my goodness. So check out Mead's miniatures on Instagram. She's, um, she's doing uh, all kinds of miniature things. She's now living in London. Uh, with her husband and uh, but she loves she's always loved dolls houses and things it's funny because she's six foot one but you know she's loved the tiny things in life and uh, so she uh, entered the last two years in the miniature settings at the Philadelphia flower show and they're the little garden room type things so that's what she loves to do those are my favorite part of the flower show. You have to tell her. Oh, <laughs> I will. miniature gardens. I wait all day till the crowds subside and then run back to that corner so I can like take each of them in and take tons of photos. I'm, I'm a big dollhouse and miniature person myself. Oh, well, check her out then on Instagram. She, she's got some stuff up and I'm sure she'll put more up. She's been making all kinds of things over in London. So, yeah, And maybe we'll have to have her on the podcast sometime to talk miniature gardening pointers oh yes yeah <laughs> there is a big community you're right there's a um janet calvo who lives over in seattle uh who wrote the little you know you know her from um garden com i'm uh, i think she's a member and she she wrote the the book on miniature gardens but me got the chance to meet her at the flower show um a couple of years ago she came and spoke and um you know, it's just a, if you don't have very much space, growing little miniature plants is just a wonderful way to have your own little garden, but on a small scale. Yeah. And you can make such little vignettes and tell stories with them. Yes. So it's a yeah, lot of fun. It is fun. And, and so with you and your husband, you settled outside of Philadelphia and it's your, your property Northview that you live at now is described as Victorian. Um, so what makes it Victorian? Just the age of the house. So um, not particularly the garden style. Um, that would be more carpet bedding. And uh, I can't do that. It's labor intensive. But um, so the house is from 1887 and it's a historic house. It was built by Wilma and Anna Atkinson. And Wilma Atkinson was the founding editor of the Farm Journal. And those of you who grew up in farming families might remember the Farm Journal. I've had people all over the country say they, you know, they looked forward to it arriving, you know, in their uh, mailboxes. Um, it's, I think it's still around, but it we had a million uh, circulation at one point, you know, back in 125 years ago or whenever. Um, so it was pretty influential. And he was um, he was a fighting Quaker. Very, very interesting guy. I mean, we know how much Quakers fought for, you know, abolition, but they were pacifists. Um, but there was a subset of Quakers that really believed so strongly in abolition that they would go and fight uh, for the end of slavery. So, you know, I feel that he and he, he was also pro women's rights as well back in 1915. Um, he was the head of the Men's League for Woman Suffrage in Pennsylvania. And wow, I never knew there was such a yeah, thing. Yeah, so 1915, before women got the vote, you know, obviously that was in um, 1920, so 100 years ago. 
um, across the country because the people that were voting, men were voting on whether women should have the right to vote. So, um, but it, it got turned down in Pennsylvania in, in 15, but his three daughters, I mean, he had three daughters, he and Anna had three daughters, um, were very, uh, they're all very educated. I think they all went on to post-degree uh, uh, education. And, um, you know, it's a, he was definitely a progressive. He was definitely looking at ways to help people farm more efficiently. Um, you know, he, he talked about a lot of conservation issues, which no one was talking about. Like he had the Liberty, Liberty Bell or Liberty Bird Club uh, to help young people learn about birds because it was a thing to kill birds because they thought they were eating the fruit. So, you know, um, he was trying, he was on that end of the conservation. I mean, some of his recipes for trying to get rid of things were, you know, like arsenic of lead and things like that when, you know, but they, I don't think they realized how toxic those sort of things were back then. Um, you know, but it, it makes interesting reading. There's some online, the farm journal it's called, and also Wilma Atkinson's, uh, autobiography is online. So if you look up his name and Northview, it's in the great American newspaperman series. So um, it's very fascinating. I mean, I, I'm really interested in the Quaker influence on um, landscape architecture and gardens, because if you look in this Philadelphia area, there's about 35 public gardens that all belong to this America's Garden Capital Group. And many of them have either Quaker foundation exactly or have Quaker influence by board members and other people that help set it up because the Quakers loved nature. And, you know, you look at uh, Wick in Germantown, you look at Longwood, you look at, you know, so many of them, the, there was definitely that influence. Yeah, a few years ago, um, the organization that you and I are both members of, Gardencom, the organization for garden communicators, writers, photographers, etc. We did a Quaker tour of the Philadelphia area, um, hitting some of those Quaker properties. So that was really enlightening to learn a lot of that history. And that was my first time visiting Wick. And that was very, that, that was a highlight for me. Yes. Yeah. There is, a, they have a podcast. I did one on old, old roses with them. So check that one out. It's called the Curiosity Cabinet. I think that one, but you know, their old roses are world famous. I think it might be the oldest rose garden in America, if I remember rightly. So that's in Germantown. Yeah, there's a lot of history, a lot of history here. And uh, as you know, I really love the women's history up here as well. And many of the early 1900s gardeners were women because they were really trying to get out of their box of their, you know, house and home and start making friends and getting out and about and doing a lot of social change, like, um, you know, forming uh, homes for um, widowed people and orphaned girls and prison reform and all those sort of things. And it all ties into gardening in a weird way because a lot of them were fabulous gardeners in their own right. So it's an interesting, interesting history. Yep. And very progressive. Yes. Very progressive. Yeah. Interesting. So in your background, you um, taught at Temple University, correct? Yep. Yep. And, and at the Barnes as well. The Barnes Foundation has a horticulture program I taught uh, garden history in that and then I taught uh, woody plants and um, what else did I teach oh history of landscape architecture as well and foundations of horticulture as well mm -hmm. and a few weeks ago on the podcast we had another 
Temple University professor on, who's who's now gone on to write her shrubs and oh, hedges Eva. book. Eva, Eva Monheim. Yes, yep. so she's she, a friend of mine. Yes, yes. Yep. And, and small world and close circles of horticulture. And then you went on to be director at the Ambler Arboretum. Yes. Can, yeah. Can you talk about that arboretum. So that that is the uh, old Pennsylvania School of Horticulture for Women. So um, that site, that ties back to the, the women that I study and give lectures on. So um, that was founded by more Quakers, what a surprise, um, primarily Jane Bowne Haynes from the Haynes family of Wick. There we go, circles. Um, and she'd gone to see the women's horticulture schools in, in Europe and came back and decided that America needed a school of horticulture. Um, there was a Lothor up in Groton. Groton, Massachusetts. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, but uh, that was designed more. And her school was uh, the first horticulture school. And um, so it was um, it was designed to to teach young people uh, not only the you know the brain work of how to to do horticulture, but the actual physical work. So there's pictures of them in long dresses climbing trees and you know, in the greenhouse with mud on the bottom of their hems and things like that. So it's really amazing. Um, and so that became Temple Ambler and it became a, an arboretum. It's, it's really what um, uh, Stephanie Cohen was the director before me. You might uh, remember her. Mm -hmm. And she um, called it a landscape arboretum because it's really there's a series of gardens and um, each garden has sort of historical significance and women that were associated with it mainly, um, uh, like Louise Bush Brown, who many of you might have an old copy of America's Garden book, which, uh, you know, still has some good stuff if you ignore the arsenate of lead again. But, you know, <laughs> um, but most of it's got great design things in it and all kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I was there nearly 10 years. Yeah. And it's a great place. Um, I co-wrote a book when it was the 100th uh, anniversary called A Century of Cultivation with Marianne Fry. And uh, we did uh, a lot of gathering of the archives and trying to preserve that history. Um, because women's history often tends to get lost, unfortunately. But, you know, so that was good. That's wonderful. And so with the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society, you were the director of Meadowbrook Farm in Jenkintown. Yes. And yeah. now you've recently took on a new title. Yes, I'm now the senior fellow in horticulture. I'm, I'm uh, doing, uh, I mean, I've always done a lot of education, I'm, you know, as a teacher, but um, I'm outreach, I'm uh, working with development to try and work on ways that we can bring more money in to fund a lot of our projects through, you know, through being out in the community um, and this, these days giving webinars, you know, um, rather than in-person lectures. But, you know, when we can go out and about, I'll go back to doing lectures. But anything, anything to get the word out about, you know, good quality horticulture, uh, you know, help people learn how to at this point, particularly grow their own vegetables. We've got a whole Harvest 2020. If you look on our phsonline.org um, website, you've got, uh, you can sign up to be a grower or a sharer or donate to us uh, for all the things that we're trying to help with a lot of food insecurity at the moment. So yes, it's an interesting 
interesting new job that happened right as lockdown happened. So <laughs> it might not be quite the same as what we were imagining before, but there we go. You know, these things happen. Yeah, but certainly good timing with the, the harvest sharing and ramping up that program. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing. People are really putting their backs into it and, and growing much uh, as much extra, giving it to food banks, um, you know, really, you know, planting an extra row. I know we did that with Garden Com, the plant a row for the hungry. Same same idea. You know, all of us want to try and help out as much as possible. We have skills um, and we might as well use them. And we have soil. You know, we can grow it in pots. We can grow it in raised beds, wherever we have a extra little row. For sure. And it's so easy to donate and so many places you know, are so happy to get fresh fruit and vegetables and fresh herbs and even cut flowers. I, I was surprised to um, gather a bunch of zinnias from my garden a few years ago and drop them off with the vegetables uh, to a local soup ki- kitchen. And they were far more excited about the zinnias than anything. <laughs> I mean, flowers make people happy. I mean, you know, we know that. So I'm, I um, really feel like anything we can do to help people you know maybe it's give a bunch of flowers to your neighbor or your little little uh, girl that's walking down the street when you you know she comes on her walk I know people uh, I think uh, gardeners are such generous people anyway that's part of our nature because we're always giving each other you know a little packet of seeds or some, a slip of a plant we just had a, a little boy over yesterday you know we we're all wearing he what masks and everything and uh, um, my husband, Gus, dug up a bit of his raspberry cane and gave it to him, you know, and that little boy loved the raspberries. So now he can grow his own raspberries. So, you know, that sort of thing. That's what that's what we do naturally. But I think now we need to double our efforts and make sure we're doing it more and helping people. You know, it, it, Gus gave him the instructions of how to plant it, how to water it in, you know, but, give them something to garden with and then give them some instructions to go with it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Things that we've been doing out of just our nature for years just need to become more deliberate and planned probably. Yes. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, I think it's, it's good. Um, And food insecurity is such a big issue and it's not really talked about a lot. Um, And I think also that, availability of fresh uh, fruit and vegetables is another whole problem Um, you know you might be able to get food but it might not be of very good quality or it might not be very nutritious and if it's grown in the local community in good soil then the nutrition value is is much better as well and when you grow it yourself it just tastes so much better yes I know and the and you're you realize you're your, uh, you know, and then you try something else the next time, you know, it's sort of like success is good and then you do something else. So that's good. So I wanted to bring us to your book that came out a couple years ago called Glorious Shade, which I love the title, by the way. Oh, <laughs> I keep thinking it's just called Shade. And then I pull it out. and I'm like, oh, no, it's Glorious Shade. Well, <laughs> I really shade. I mean, uh, you know, um, the backstory on that is that, you know, um, so I, I was asked by Timber Press to, to write the book, but so many people, when they talk to me about shade or even some other books, start with, oh, no, you have shade. And I'm like, I love, go outside today. Where do you want to be? You want to be in the shade. I mean, it's it's probably 10 degrees cooler under the trees or, you know, 
in the shade. Where do you want to sit? You want to sit in the shade right now. Um, and the plants, a lot of the plants in, you know, depending where you garden, but a lot of the plants in hot summer climates really appreciate um, part day shade. And, you know, if you read the English gardening books, a lot of them say full day sun. But where do we need to put them in the mid-Atlantic? We need to put them in definitely afternoon shade. So it's sort of like we, we've sort of, you know, we haven't really talked about that enough because that afternoon sun out there, you know, right now is hot and you know, those poor plants are wilting in that afternoon sun. So, Yeah, so many of the plant profiles and descriptions I write these days are part sun, part shade prefers not to be in afternoon sun. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think people are, are finally understanding that. But actually, even a few years ago, nobody was saying that. And I, I really feel like it's good. We're getting the, getting the picture because, you know, that, that is really, we know from, you know, if you went to the, to the uh, swimming pool, I'm not that sure whether you could go or not now, but, you know, if you did back in the day, you know, you go in the morning if you don't want it too hot. And by after work, if you're going, oh, boy, is it hot over there, you know, unless you've got a nice tree in the in the way of the sun. But, you know, we know it instinctively, but then we put this poor little astilbe in afternoon sun and we're like, why is it wilting? Oh, let me see. And what you do find is just obviously if that astilbe is in afternoon sun, it needs double the amount of uh, water in the soil that it would if it was in morning sun. So it's also saving on your water bill, you know, as well. So. And if only we could make our, our whole gardens, our whole yards be morning sun, afternoon shade. I know, <laughs> that would be good. But um, not in this book, but I'm, I am writing another book. I don't remember if I even told you, but it's going to be more the sun equivalent. And um, when I, uh, I, so this garden I've been at Northview Garden, I've been here 23 years and I have all different, I'm lucky enough to have a mixture. I've planted very many trees, um, but there are so many techniques for helping with that water, uh, stopping water loss. So I've, I'm going to be writing about some of those in the next book. That will be very helpful because I think one of my personally biggest challenges is dry shade. Um, in particular, in under big old growth oak trees, and, and a lot of those people who are in inner neighborhoods, old suburbs where you have huge trees, not much understory, and then your ground cover plantings. Yeah. So I mean, the the if if you whatever dry conditions you have, I mean, if it's under trees, your your friend is leaf mold, and for so many people and I you know I'm not um, passing judgment on it but if you if you actually want to have more in the way of moisture in your soil you have to add tons of compost and leaf mold to that soil it's unbelievable how much you have to add but even if you leave the leaves that are there or shred them and put them back it will make such a huge difference in only a year or two and when I go to people's properties and look at their soil most of the time, uh, the leaves are blown off in the fall and then they're taken either to the curb for a, you know, lovely township recycling program, which we love. But if, if they, if every time, every time those leaves drop, they're taken away, um, that poor garden becomes sort of parched. And I've seen it in my own garden that 
the more leaves you can add, and, and it's almost like you can't add too many. Obviously, you don't pile them against the trunk of the tree, but the more you can add, the, the better your chances of success in a dry shade uh, situation. It's amazing, it, you know, um, if you can do that. Yeah, you're just returning what the tree is naturally shedding back to the soil. And and it it's amazing, like you say, how quickly uh, uh, application of leaf grow or leaf mulch or whatever yeah, whatever you can get for it is just disappears after a month or so. Yep. And the one thing about ground cover, even the dreaded pachysandra, which seems to have taken over the whole of the East Coast. Um, I like the native pachysandra, by the way. It's not as fast growing. But um, the good thing about any of those ground covers is that the leaves just get trapped in there as they fall and then they work themselves down to the soil so you know people poo poo ground covers but really they are they're very helpful um to return those leaves in there and people don't notice that they're there so they don't blow them away you know so that's that's a trick you know if you're struggling with it a bit yeah it does kind of swallow up a, a lot of those excess leaves yep yep and then just be judicious in your watering. I mean, you know, um, you do have to sometimes water it under, especially a big old tree that, that has surface roots. Oaks are actually better than maples, to be honest. Um, Norway maples are all, almost the worst. And the, the trick there is don't beat yourself up if you can't grow anything very close to the trunk. Just pull the whole thing out more to the edge of the canopy and, um, you know, just really don't worry about having anything much close to the trunk. Um, you don't have to cover every inch of soil with something. And often your ground covery things will either seed themselves in or grow towards the trunk from where you've done the planting. And they, they grow. I've got hookahs growing right against tree, tree trunks that I couldn't planted them there, but they grew from seed. And uh, so they'll put themselves where they buy seed or runners where you couldn't possibly plant them. Epimediums, the same, you know, you plant them away from the trunk and then over time they'll spread themselves or start with very, very tiny little plants. That's my other trick. The smaller, the better, even if it's like, say, I don't know if you know uh, 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 epimedium, which is the bishop's hat, um, but it's, or fairy wings, some people call it, but that is one of the ones that gets labeled for dry shade. I mean, it does better in, you know, moderate moist soil, but um, even a tiny little like shoot off the side of somebody else's um, is pretty uh, resistant to drought. It might take a year or two to get going, but if you look after it, um, that will spread into a nice patch. So, And I, I, I highly recommend Epimedium for... Um, taking over where other ground covers are not so desirable. I actually tested a little patch of Epimedian up against English ivy, and it ran over the ivy. Oh, well, very good to know. I will, uh, If you don't mind me quoting you on that, I will quote you. <laughs> not at all, and I'll, I'll be happy to share photos as well, because I've tried every ground cover available uh, up against the ivy just to see who would duke it out, Liriope, um, the hardy geranium, 
Um, all of them, some of them will stand against it, you know, hold their ground, but nobody has actually run over and swallowed it until Epimedium. Okay, good. Everyone take note. <laughs> <laughs> and, that one, and, and, and you give flowers to boot. So yes, there and there's all kinds of new ones out there. Um, but the old fashioned, the toughest ones are the old uh, Roseum and Sulfurium. If you can get those, they are the strongest and most garden worthy, you know, and very easy to be a pass-along plant from a neighbor. So the yellow one and the pink one, the old-fashioned ones, are the toughest. Yeah, I would say the sulfurium uh, you can get from almost any plant swap or plant exchange. Yes, yes, go that, for it. Yes, That one's a, a good pass-along one. So one topic that always goes hand-in-hand hand when talking about shade gardening is deer resistance. Yes, um, well, top of the list has to be hellebores. Um, uh, they're Lenten rose, some people call them, um, especially the X hybridus, which just means they've all crossed with each other. And there's so many wonderful ones. There are a late winter blooming um, ground cover, really, when it turns out, you know, they spread and they might seed in for you. Um, they will take pretty much any conditions, including pretty dry shade I have to say mine are in dry shade um, and again start with small plants I, I started with three dollar plants that somebody gave me you know from a that are just absolutely minute and now they're like bushel basket size um, the the reason I say small is because there's often small gaps between roots and you look at your tree trunk and you look and see where the big roots are coming off the trunk and then you look and at those triangles. Um, and see where the, you might be able to find a space. But back to deer resistance. Um, Epimedium is deer resistant. Uh, Brun Brunnera, the perennial forget-me-not, is completely res deer resistant. And how do I know all these plants? Because I turned around the other day, I was out in the garden with my husband, and over his shoulder he couldn't see was a buck standing bold as brass in my garden. And then there's a mum with a little fawn, so... Pretty much anything I grow uh, has to be at least moderately deer resistant. That was very bold. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. It was like a very bold move. Yeah, I don't they know. They have no fear of humans at this no, point. No, I know. Uh, and ferns are very, shockingly to me, deer resistant. Yes, some of them in the spring as those new, you know, we like the fiddleheads when they come up in the spring. So when those new uh, fiddleheads come up early in the spring, they might browse them. Uh, the ones like autumn fern that are still around all winter, they might have a nibble at. Um, and mm, most of the time they are. I mean, if there's severe deer pressure, you know, pretty much anything gets munched on every now and then. And interestingly, I've found that the little babies will try anything. They will try things that you know are poisonous, uh, you know, um, all of the um, things, there's a bunch of poisonous ones that grow in a shade garden, like uh, snowdrops. They contain a poison, so don't eat those, and the deer don't eat those. Um, and the, if you've got like part shade, daffodils will grow fine if you put them like edge of the woods or edge of, edge of shade. Um, in the book, I go through different types of shade, you know, like morning sun, afternoon shade, uh, those sort of things, and edge shade. And if you, a lot of gardens have this wonderful edge shade. So it's just outside the canopy, it gets some shade for part of the day. Um, and things like daffodils are fine. 
and then a lot of your perennials are fine. I didn't even have room in the book to put them all in, but you know, um, Rudbeckia triloba um, is great in shade. Uh, Agastache funiculum. No deer will eat either of those. Uh, actually, they might nibble the top of the Rudbeckia, but the the Agastache, the um, hummingbird mint, I think it's called. Is it? Oh no, that one. Anise hyssop. If you rub the leaves, that's right. Some of the other Agastaches are called hummingbird mints, but the an, uh, the it's called um, Agastache funiculum, F-O-E-N-iculum, um, and that smells like anise uh, or aniseed, and the the deer avoid it. But it, it actually, I have it growing under a spruce tree, believe it or not. So if you know. A lot of the plants that we grow as perennials actually were much more uh, versatile than we give them credit for. Yeah, there are several um, of what you would have considered a sun perennial that seed for me into the shade and up, you know, as you said, right up almost to the the trunk of oak trees. And that does include the anise hyssop, which seeds around readily. And um, I was just blanking on a name. It'll come back to me. Okay. But they, but a lot of things, you know, that, that you don't necessarily try. But, but look for the Rudbeckia trilobo. It's the little, it's the brown-eyed Susan, I think it is, that really has done well in shade for me. Um, ah, yeah. I, I recall the Triceratus, the toad lilies. Oh, yes. Yes. They're, yes. They, they are a great uh, fall bloomer. Um, they can get a little uh, rabbit damage. I've had a little rabbit damage from them. Mind you, I have 100 rabbits, so... You know they've multiplied, but um, but they that's a great toad lily is a wonderful one. Mm-hmm. And what shrubs would you recommend for um, not necessarily a dry shade situation, but to maybe bring some brightness to a shade, a dark shade spot? Well, all of the hydrangeas and mine are in full uh, bloom right now. Actually, if you if you're an Instagram person, check out my Instagram, which is at Northview Garden. Um, so north like the north south view garden and uh you'll see my hydrangeas oh my goodness i'm so glad they didn't get frosted they're endless summer and i of those are the traditional mop head ones um i have all different hydrangeas uh the um oak leaf hydrangea is a native if you like that one that grows much bigger than i ever realized but it's wonderful it's flowering now um you might occasionally get a little deer nibbling on that, but that seems to be less nibbled than maybe some of the others. Um, there are for like a light shade is um, Itea and Clethra. Those are both native shrubs that have fragrant flowers. Um, Itea is very, uh, you can take wet or dry. So I have a rain garden and I've got both of those plants down by my rain garden. Um, let's think what else. Um Really, all of the rhododendrons and azaleas, I, I have um, one rhododendron. If you have a, a wet spot now, um, I, I know we haven't had very much rain, but it's in my uh, bottom area of a garden and it's blooming now. And it's rhododendron viscosum. And it, that means sticky and it has slightly sticky leaves, but it's so fragrant. Kathy, oh, my goodness, you just walk, you know, 100 feet away and you can smell it. So all of the rhododendrons, azaleas, mahonias for dry shade, they will take completely dry shade. Um, And there is a native one that's native out west. Um, Oh, witch hazels. I have about 42 different witch hazels. 
um, and they bloom in January, February, March. Um, they'll they need some sun, but you know, again, it's just placement with respect to all of your other trees and shrubs and things like that. So there's there's a few of them, but there, there's actually more that will take uh, a lot of our native shrubs will take part shade um, because they grow in sort of glades of the canopy, things like Fothergilla, that's another native. Um, that's the uh, the one that has the white bottle brush in the spring. That's a great one. As opposed to the um, Ohio Buckeye, which has a huge bottle brush. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. that's in summer. Yes. Yeah. I, I actually, of the small trees, I love, I mean, uh, for shade, I, I I don't know which one is my favorite in the book. I think I argue with myself about which I like best. But uh, my top three are our native dogwood, which I believe we really should all be trying to grow. I know sometimes they get anthracnose and things, but I've, I think it's sort of moving away. Um, and it has the fruit in the for the birds when they migrate south. And most of us on the east are on that eastern flyway. So it's like an energy pack for the for the birds so i'm trying to get people to grow that red red buds uh which i love and that spring color is gorgeous and then back to the buckeyes i grow the red buckeye and it's uh Aeschylus pavia and we tried growing the conquer like fruit we put in let me think i think we put in eight and nine of no seven of them, not nine but put in eight and the ninth that's like the loaves and fishies okay sorry we put in eight and seven of them are growing and we're so excited we just I love them so much so it's worth trying I've tried all kinds of tree seeds from this last year and they need to be outside over the winter for what they call stratification but my neighbor has a um has a persimmon American persimmon tree so some of the fruit fell over uh, my fence. And so I picked them up, planted those. I've got one of those growing and I have some little baby dogwoods growing and I have some um, pawpaw. I think, do I have any pawpaws? Anyway, but I have all these things growing and I just am so excited about it. It's really a fun thing. I have no idea what I could grow a forest now. I'm going to be have to go to the plant sale or something, but you know. Yeah, you're going to have even more shade than, I than know. before. Yep. And that happens when you have lived in a, a place for a long time and you like little trees, you'd get more shade. So there you go. Yeah, I always say that's the progression of, of the gardener is the, the first 10 years you're trying to fill in every possible spot <laughs> with, you know, mostly sun loving plants. And then you've gotten your shrubs and small trees have grown up to the point that they start shading out some of those sun lovers. And then you're subtracting, subtracting, subtracting for the next 10 years. And, <laughs> and, and then a tree comes down and then you're adding, adding, adding for the next 10 years after that. Yep. Yeah. Well, this property, uh, because Wilma was a, was a tree lover, um, the, 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 we still have some old trees that, um, that he planted and uh so that's really a nice thing because we can uh enjoy those but they you know that was a long time ago so we have been trying to uh add new and interesting trees to to the garden so and so what's on your wish list of either 
plants that you've had an eye on and wanted to squeeze into your garden or maybe some plants that are coming up in the trade that are going to be introduced Ooh, soon? Where is my list? I have a whole list, Kathy. I've got all kinds of things. Um, I actually, uh, because I'm writing this new book, I am trying so many things from seed this year. Um, a lot of them are flowers, garden flowers. Um, and we've been growing more perennials from seed, which I just, uh, it's much easier than maybe you think. Um, there are, there are always, because I come from England, there's always the, I have, uh, various English gardening magazines and then there's always the tantalizing ones that you like, Oh, I wish I could have that. Why can't I have that? Why is that not available here? So, um, you know, I'm still looking for seed of various things, but you actually, if you grow from seed, you can grow a much uh, wider range that, than you could even buy in the trade. So um, I'm having a little passion fit about some of the thelictrums and um, some of them are very uh, good in either part shade or shade or sun, some of them. So um, there is one called thelictrum tuberosum, which I can't even remember what it looks like, but it's on my wish list um, that I saw I am a fan of Instagram, I have to say, because you see all these things. You're like, oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. Um, I also am trying all the different um, foxgloves because when you're looking at people's borders and some of them, I've got them in shade. I've got them in sun. Um, you know, the uh, Ferrugineana, the uh, Grandiflora, the um, we've got some going in the dry garden, never watered of the Lanata. Um, which has a nice little, like a, it's, it, they all have these um, sort of tubular flowers going up the sti spike. Um, and I'm having a bit of a passion fit about um, spiky flowers because things like the verbascum um, that I grew this last year, I think it was wedding candles. Um, on the Instagram, I've got a little thing of the pollinators on it. They were going crazy. And of course, I am really concentrating on uh, pollinators uh, because we're all trying to get more of them in the garden. And I'm very worried because we don't have any butterflies at the moment. But um, no, this year they seem to be slow in coming. Yeah. So those are some of the some of on my wish list. So. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask for the foxgloves. Are those um, self sowing themselves? Are you doing them by seed in a greenhouse and then planting them out? How are you starting them? Okay, I have spent years growing and trying to grow more foxgloves. So this is my trick, especially for the mid Atlantic, because in England they're native. Though you know, you think of the foxy gentleman in Beatrix Potter. You know, in uh, uh, so. They, they're native to woodlands over there, and I grew up with them. That's the Digitalis purpurea, of which there are many different cultivars now. Um, so for years, because they are biennial, you plant them this time of year. So get the seeds now. I try them all the different ways. So I sprinkle some in place, and I think I actually have most luck with that. And my trick, several tricks, if you have gravel or grit, Put the gravel or grit on the surface of the soil. No hardwood mulch. You'll never get it going if you mulch your garden. You know, that's the enemy of all these self-sowers. Um, and maybe another time we can talk about self-sowers because that's one of my pet subjects. Um, but you sprinkle them on the gravel or grit. You have to get the baby plant to start growing and get its roots down 
for the rest of this year. And the trick is the gravel and grit or stones. If uh, when you when they are going, when you can see the baby plants, add more like flat stones around the foxglove babies um, because that keeps under the stone is moist, but it sort of sheds the water away from the crown. The crown will rot in our terrible mid-Atlantic freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, and the, and the baby um, biennial will get pushed out of the ground and then freeze to death. Horrible death there. But um, So if you can get it through that winter, then you will have the best uh, digitalis uh, the second year. And purpurea is the easiest ones to start with. That's, the, that's purples and pinks and whites. And then try some of the other ones uh, after you've got the first one. You have to do that, sow them two years in a row because they're biennials. Then your first crop will come. And the idea is to get it into a self-sustaining little um, community. So then the next year you do the same thing and those ones will overwinter. And then the seed from the first lot will hopefully then take over the third year. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And I have had zero luck with foxgloves. <laughs> so I am going to run out today and get some seed packs and start them off. Yeah. And you can start them. We've got other ones that have started in modules, you know, in uh, potting soil as well. I mean, I'm trying to cover every base with these darn things. Um, and then I'll probably put them out in a cold frame or, you know, like in a window well or somewhere outside because I don't think they want to be inside over the winter. I think that won't be good for them. So um, the trick is how you get them to survive over the winter. And there are there are um, foxgloves now that they say will grow from seed in one year, but I don't like that. I want them, there's what they call that June gap that they or May gap. It's sort of like, when did they bloom? May-ish, and they're probably May for you. But the um, the biennials fill that. So that little bit after the spring bulbs are finished, before the perennials get going, um, the, a lot of the biennials fill that gap. And that includes foxgloves and sweet william and all of those sort of ones. So, you know, it's just a trick to get them in our winters over, over that freeze-thaw period. So hmm. It does sound like it might be a candidate for the winter sowing technique. Yes. Um, so yes. might, might reserve some seeds to try that as well. Yeah, I, I basically, with all of these ones that are a little tricky, I do all the things and I try them. Uh, I do succession sowing because if, you know, if you planted all of your seed and then we get just like a terrible dry five weeks or something, you know, they might not grow. So I always try and do a bit and then try them somewhere else and do a bit. You know, that's how I go uh, approach it. And I think that's what makes you such a successful plants woman is that experimentation. That <laughs> you have to kill almost, I want to say, far more than live. I know. <laughs> yes. It's a little yeah. soul destroying sometimes. You're like, oh, darn, you know, but it's a, I, I do like experimenting. And that's why I put in this dry garden 15 years ago and I've never watered it. So, you know, that's a whole nother thing that. What can you grow in our mid-Atlantic with no, with no water at all? So, 
Yeah. Which is wonderful to follow you on Instagram. And again, that address is at Northview Garden Singular. So yes. not gardens, but singular. And how else can our listeners reach you or learn more about the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society? So the website for um, the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society is um, phsonline.org. And I'd love you to look at our Harvest 2020 and see if you can get involved with that. Um, we're definitely all in the whole mid-Atlantic. We've got people in Delaware and I'm sure further south uh, working with us. And we're trying to get 100,000 gardeners to uh, be part of the program and donate food and, you know, help our neighbors. So that's our goal. And uh, those of you who know us all know we're doing a lot of tree planting, a lot of community gardens. Uh, So all of that information is on our brand new website. So I hope you'll check that out. Great. And you're always looking for volunteers for those projects as well. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to get uh, back into that soon. You know, as soon as it's safe for people, our top priority is safety, obviously. Um, and we have a new uh, head of our volunteer program who just started during the epidemic. So she's getting getting all kinds of ideas for how to engage people. Um, the other thing is online. I just did a webinar uh, last week on how to do a simple garden to vase or vase uh, flower arrangement. Um, So there's all kinds of webinars, plus there are free little like three minute uh, growinars, they're called, uh, that that we're putting up two or three a week of those. So there's a ton of information um, and all kinds of ways to get involved. So come join us on our journey. Sounds terrific. Jenny, thank you so much for joining our podcast. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me, Kathy. I enjoyed it. It's always fun to talk to you. Thank you. And I cannot wait to come and visit Northview in person sometime soon. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that day and I will be happy to give you a tour. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Plant profile, Clematis. Clematis is a perennial vine that features blooms from large and small in a rainbow of colors. The flower shapes can vary from layered stars to tiny bells. Many have wavy edges or twisting petals. The showy flowers aren't the only cool thing about Clematis. They also have attractive seed heads that last for months and add additional seasons of interest. Clematis make excellent cut flowers, and their seed heads are great to use in dried arrangements. Some clematis are more shrubby than vining, and others have a running habit that make them a good ground cover option. Some of the climbing vines are aggressive spreaders, like the invasive sweet autumn clematis, while most others are slow-growing and stay relatively small, making them perfect for a container. There are springtime bloomers, while others bloom late in the summer and into the fall. There are over 200 different species of clematis and hundreds of different cultivars. The purple jackmanai is the best known clematis of all time. 
Also popular is the pink and white Nellie Moser and the new Taiga with its dramatic green center. There is a native Clematis virginiana, known commonly as Virgin's Bower, that looks very similar to Sweet Autumn Clematis. There is also Clematis virana with bell-shaped blooms that is native to the southeastern U.S. Clematis are said to be demanding to grow and harder to prune, but their needs are actually fairly simple. Clematis want their roots kept moist and their heads in the sun. One exception to that rule is the pastel flowering clematis, which will fade in strong afternoon sun. Don't worry, you won't kill it by pruning it at the wrong time. If you make a pruning mistake, you may deprive yourself of flowers for a season, but you are still likely to get a few blooms. The early springtime bloomers of clematis group 1 bloom on old wood and need only pruning to reduce their size or to remove damaged branches. In group 2 are the clematis that bloom in early summer. These bloom on both old and new wood. Most of the large flowered hybrids are in this group. Prune them in the spring before new growth begins. Make your cuts just above the healthiest looking buds. Next, cut out any tangles and damaged wood. In group 3 are clematis that flower from midsummer well into fall. They bloom only on new wood and can be cut hard in the spring to within 6 inches of the ground. Clematis are heavy feeders and they need to be fertilized regularly during the growing season, but remember to stop when they begin to bloom. Clematis, you can grow that. Logging offline in the garden, a prescription for a nature cleanse in your own backyard. The publishers of medium.com asked, what happens when we take a detox from the digital world? What a cheeky question from a service that depends wholly on online subscriptions. As someone who spends a great deal of my waking hours on the computer, writing and editing my Washington Gardener magazine, doing blog posts, etc., then engaging in social media, I know I probably fall in the addicted category. What form would a detox take, and what does that even mean? Most detoxes start with a cleanse of some kind, a clearing of accumulated toxins. Some programs describe an initial fasting period, and others describe a weaning off. I plan to take a break from social media over this holiday week. I don't think I'll go cold turkey but we'll just try to stay offline as much as possible to work on some long neglected projects. To deal with the withdrawal symptoms, I'm lucky to have a garden to retreat into. Although the temperatures are a bit steamy outside, I still can get a lot done. Here are the ways I plan to pursue a nature cleanse. Number one, go forest bathing. I'll take my shoes off and put my bare feet on the soil in a local park. Number two, do yoga outdoors. On a sunny day, I will take my mat outside and do my usual morning stretches under the bare arms of a big white oak tree. Three, weed. When getting down on my hands and knees and pulling out the Bermuda grass, roots and all, I often enter a zen-like state. Time passes without noticing, and then there's a satisfying pile of detritus to show for the effort. Four, pick herbs. I will collect herbs for drying and process the ones I've already hung to dry. 
I will smell their scent and add them to my cooking. Five, plan next year's vegetable garden. I will get out an actual piece of graph paper and a pencil and chart the plot, complete with those seasonal transitions. Six, clean out the tools in the shed. I can bring a bunch of neglected tools inside and sharpen them, oil them, and then I'll clean out the shed so it can be properly stored and not be in such sad shape again. Seven, repot some houseplants. The root bound and those with depleted soil are crying out for attention at this time of year and I'll finally give it to them. Eight, share my bounty. I will bring some extra plants to local gardeners and give some of the harvest from my garden plot to a local food bank. Number nine, turn the compost pile. Somewhere at the bottom of that heap is black gold and I intend to unearth it and add it to some of my garden beds. Number 10, meditate. I will sit and breathe in the garden. I will take time to simply enjoy it, not photograph it, not journal it, not tweet it, or work in it. After the detox comes a slow and reintroduction back to the old routine, ideally refreshed and renewed, ready for a new season in the garden. What's blooming in the garden this week? We just finished celebrating National Pollinator Week, so I was concentrating on what I have blooming right now for the pollinators. In my sidewalk hill strip, milkweed is still going strong, joined by celosia, cleome, monarda, echinacea, and salvias. I've planted two new vines, cypress vine and moonflower, that I think hopefully will attract some hummingbirds to my garden. Over at the community garden plot, I have yarrow and borage, which are both covered with bees. What are you adding to your garden to support local pollinators? Let me know at WDC Gardener at Instagram or Twitter. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.